Good morning. Brent, I'm going to tip your microphone. I'm sorry. Uh, good morning. My name is Jennifer Phillips, and our passage today is John 11, 1 through 27. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die... Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Thank you, Jen, so much for that. Good morning, everybody. Everyone seems to have adjusted to the time change so well. So many happy, smiley faces coming in, well-rested looking faces. It is amazing and it's a great privilege for us to be in the house of the Lord together and to encourage one another. Um, I know that all of the folks that walked in with smiling faces don't have all smiley circumstances going on in their life, and yet they found some way to be positive and bright coming through these doors. And so keep that in mind as we see all the folks that are just so happy to say good morning and great to see you. They could be walking out of a whole heap of trouble 
But it means so much to see you here and connecting them to the truth of, of community and God's word and our belief together that uh, this is not all that we are ever going to experience in our lives, those of us that follow the Lord. And so it's just amazing to be a part of uh, this movement called the church and the incredible responsibility that we have to steward it, to lead it, to shepherd it, to participate in it and all those things. So I say all that to echo the announcement of tonight's business meeting. I get so nervous on business meeting day and I can't wait to get into the message. And there's so much to talk about in the passage. It was just read for us, but I get a little distracted because I look forward to tonight so much that I get a little bit antsy. And I hope that what it becomes is not just a business meeting that says, here's how we approve the spreadsheets and the dollars and that sort of thing. But we enter into something together and we're participating in something that is growing, that's alive and that is moving in the direction that the Lord would have it move. So that's why we invite everybody to come, even if you're not yet a member and you're planning to be. Uh, it's great opportunity for you to come and kind of witness uh, what we're talking about in terms of participation and, and shared camaraderie that way. And of course, there's numbers to approve. So there's also that practical side of it as well. So I say all that just to say I'm looking forward to tonight and hoping to see many of your faces there as well. Uh, so back to the, the text. There's a lot of message here this morning. I do apologize for its length. There wasn't a quote I saw that I couldn't include. Or a verse that jumped out that I could edit out. That's terrible work on your pastor's part. Usually we're supposed to scale that back and peel things out. And I just said, oh, I just can't do it on this one. This is a climactic story in the Gospel of John. All of the miracles that Jesus has done up to this point have led to this one. And of course, this one we know leads to the ultimate resurrection of Jesus from the grave. But what's happening here in the middle of John's gospel is epic and it's, it's gigantic. And so we want to be able to take the time to, to, uh, to allow it to saturate our hearts, all the goods that are in there. And of course, there's plenty of things that we'll have to just pass over. But if you really wanted a thorough study of so many things from doctrine, theology to, um, uh, end times, future times, things like that, all of these things are coming out of John chapter 11. From Jesus raising his buddy, Lazarus, from the dead. In preparation this week, um, I was just thinking about a documentary that my wife and I happened to watch this week, and it was shot, it was filmed in Maine. It was about um, a, a family, basically, in Maine. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a national or worldwide, whatever, documentary and stuff, and and uh, we were watching this, and so every time you hear anything that sounds familiar, like, oh, they shot it in the streets you grew up, like they had some some aerial photos or some aerial, like, drone video of Auburn and Lewiston. Those are my old stomping grounds. And I remember living in that. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I'm from the streets, okay? I don't have that much street cred. But I've been around the streets. I've been on those streets. I ran through them, fear of my life, because I was a little wimp. But I've been on those streets, and uh, skateboarded on those streets, jumped off of bumpers of parked cars on those streets, all that kind of stuff. And I just remember a very different experience than what those drone aerial shots were presenting. When, I, when it's doing the flyover over Lewiston or, or Auburn, what do you see is you see straight streets, you see beautiful trees, you see all this stuff. And you're like, wow, what a pretty town. It looks like a, a beautiful main town. Now, if you're from Auburn, Lewiston, and I'm not here to disparage that, the Twin Cities, as we called them. I love those cities, and uh, but but 
That wasn't my recollection of how beautiful everything was all the time. I remember bullies on those streets. I remember girls uh, dumping me on those streets. I remember lots of pain and aggravation on the streets of Auburn and Lewiston. But from the aerial view, it looked peaceful, orderly, calm, perfect. There's a need for you and I to have a change in perspective from time to time. Now, a great thing happens in our life when someone kind of wakes us up out of our reality or pulls us out and says, no, you got to look at it this way. And we go, oh, that's such a help to me. I was seeing only what was right in front of me and it looked hopeless. It looked bleak. And then somebody had to pull me out of that and look down on it and say, no, there's a lot of there's a lot of good in this. And that becomes a very beneficial thing to us. Police are often aided by chopper photo, chopper uh, view when when people are trying to outrun the police, right? And the 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 chopper up there can say, "Oh, we think he's going over this way. You can cut him off if you send units over that way." And it and it just gets the job done because the perspective from height makes everything that much easier. You and I are in no different circumstances. Let me make a a, a culturally offensive statement. God's highest focus is his own glory. Now, if you've been around the word of God, you've been in church for a while, you have been like, that doesn't sound that offensive. But think about it. What are we promoted to think is the greatest thing in all the world? Who, who are we encouraged to look out for more than anyone else? You and me, right? Ourselves. And, and so much of the criticism about why I can't follow the God of the Bible is because all he cares about is himself. He holds his own glory up higher than it, it seems very egotistical. There is a practical, let alone a very theological reason why God cares about his own glory more than anything else. But there's a very practical, if he is truly the one and the only, if he truly is the highest the, the God of all gods, for him to elevate anything else more important than himself, he'd be guilty of idolatry. The whole system, practically speaking, would break down because now there is no one at the top that, that, that answers all the questions, that has it all in control. God must, if I can use this word again, it's more of a practical statement, more than a theological one. God must care about his own glory more than anything else in order for everything else. To make sense. The greatness of God's glory, the, the perfection of who God is, serves us as, as a perch. It pulls us up to a higher position to be able to make sense of so many other things. Isaiah saw this perspective in chapter 6 of his prophecy when he said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. His, his perspective is starting to change. He's starting to see one of magnificent glory and amazing splendor. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Those are the angels. Each had six wings and with two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is, this is how his perspective changed. I don't belong here. 
Woe, woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I have no positional um, uh, uh, reason or authority to be here. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. We're introduced to the same Lord of glory in John chapter 1. When the writer tells us in verse 14 that the word who is Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. When we are trapped in our reality, when all we see are the, in my uh, childhood experience, the mean streets of Auburn and Lewiston or whatever the case may be, when I only see the circumstances in front of me, then God rescues me when he pulls me out of that and allows me to see a different perspective. And if that perspective is not the glory of God, then I will remain with a distorted view. It's an incredible power to have this shift in perspective in the grace of God. Let me say it this plainly. We only make sense of this life through the lens of God's own glory. Even if you don't understand exactly what that means, and there's a lot that we're going to say this morning, you're going to have to grab bits and pieces, or maybe one statement is going to prick your conscience or propel you forward. But no matter what, if you bank on the fact, my life only makes sense if I start, if I take the glasses that allow me to see God's glory and I say, I just want to wear these all the time. I want to see what he's up to. I want to see what he's capable of. I want to see his majesty in everything that I'm facing. That sets the stage for this miracle that we see in John chapter 11. As Jen had read for us, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. We're introduced to the characters here in this story. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. John is assuming that that story has been told far and wide. He's going to repeat it in the next chapter for us, but there's been something about the message of redemption or the message of the works of Jesus Christ that have connected people's understanding from a popular perspective to Mary and Martha. And so when Lazarus is fallen ill, Martha sends for Jesus in verse three, the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love. Is ill. Jesus has a tremendous friendship with the family. He's got a place to stay whenever he's in town. He has an instant kinship, if you will, with them in terms of maybe they connect in certain ways or they have a camaraderie about them that is just easier perhaps for Jesus to be around. For whatever reason, these three siblings are very, very important to Jesus. This isn't totally un, uh, uh, characteristic of the language. Even, even John, the writer of this gospel, often referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. He had perhaps a way of making those people feel particularly singled out in his friendship and his care for them. And so the sisters say, the one you, who, whom you love like a brother has fallen ill. And this is, this is, uh, important for us to know is that there are the characteristics of the, that have been introduced to us about these sisters we find in Luke chapter 10. The other, uh, the writer of another gospel, uh, tells us that these sisters had already, um, approached Jesus and had some interactions with him that, uh, are worth noting. So, let's go to Luke chapter 10. And I just want to read a few verses here to set the stage. 
Now, as they went their way, verse 38, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her. You kind of picture all that we've heard about Jesus now as we've been going through John. You picture him in sort of like a smirk on his faith, Martha. Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Luke is giving us an insight here to the difference in personality between these two sisters. One is more the busy, the duty focused. We got to make sure the setting's right. This is a noble man, one of great reputation. He's the great teacher. Let's make sure everything's, everything's set and ready to go. Don't raise your hand, but some of you are like this, right? Your personality is a little bit more geared towards making sure the setting is, is right and the scene is intact. Make sure that people feel welcome that way. And then some of you are perhaps more like the Mary where it's kind of like I hang on every word you say. You, you feel important because, uh, or the other person feels important because you just lock in and you listen. And yet Jesus is saying what the service of me and making sure all those things are great and that's fine, but don't miss the relationship for the duty. And and we need to hear this today because we can be very, very busy doing the quote unquote work of the Lord. And this is why we as a church have to be very careful not to create a lot of environments and a lot of guilt tripping that says we got a lot to do. And if you cared about the Lord or if you loved your church, you would do it all. Because we can create a lot of Martha mindsets and not give enough opportunity for the Marys to sit at the feet of Jesus and say, what is it like to know him? What is it like to hear from him? What is he saying to me in my life specifically? Those things take time. They take presence. It, it takes practice. I, I will admit to you, I am much more a Martha than a Mary. I see my productivity as what I offer to the Lord. I like the work. I like checking things off the list. I like looking at the end of the day and say, I accomplished this or that. The whole sitting at his feet and presence, I don't know, that just seems kind of squishy to me. It's not concrete enough. And the Lord is forever working on me with that. So we have the background of these sisters. We understand their propensities a little bit more. So we move back to the story of John Chapter 11, to see that the glory of God needs to be our greatest purpose. Again, we're changing our perspective, wanting to see things with a different set of glasses than what the circumstances tempt us to see. In order to get there, in order to change our perspective, we need to start seeing that the glory of God is our greatest purpose. In verse 4, this is how Jesus introduces this concept. He says, this illness doesn't lead to death. And and of course, we know because of the way the story plays out, he wasn't wrong. He wasn't saying, oh, no, he's not going to die. Wait, hold that. Sorry, he's gone. Just took his last breath. A bad call on my part. No, he's saying this doesn't ultimately keep him in the grave as he's going to prove that this illness, even if he passes through death, which by the time Jesus got the message, most likely Lazarus had already died. It was a day's journey. The messenger was sent by the time he even says Lazarus is ill. Jesus is like he's more than ill. He's gone. He says this. He says, this illness doesn't lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Instantly, 
this causes some friction in our minds. And if we're being honest, it causes friction in our souls, in our hearts. To fathom that God could say that this illness, and he's going to eventually say, no, it was actually death, that this happened so that I could be glorified. It starts to mess with our heads and our hearts, and we start to say things like culture out there going, I'm having a hard time believing that God would want these things to happen. We start filling in the blanks and impugning motive here. But he would want these things to happen or allow these things to happen just so that he'd get a little bit more applause. What about all the pain and misery that Martha and Mary have to go through in the loss? What about the death, the uncomfortableness of the death itself that Lazarus experienced? The fear that he must have had as we all naturally go through when we're facing our final moments. Is Jesus saying it's all worth it? Is he saying it's it's best that these things happen because God cares about his glory more than all you people? doesn't care about you. He just cares about his own fame. This is a good opportunity to show him a uh, show off. Is this what Jesus is really communicating? We have to be honest and, and ask these questions of our own minds and our own hearts, because when we functionally just move on and be like, well, I don't really have a problem with what God does. The second it happens to us, we do. So how do we make the glory of God our greatest purpose? Well, first of all, we need to refocus on a bigger destination. We have as a human fixation, an obsession with the best now that we can accumulate at the expense of a secure or better later. We focus on getting the better job or the promotion. We want the beautiful home. We want our neighbors to be friendly and just the right amount of interaction and then leave us alone. We want a happy marriage, which means based on how I'm defining it in the moment, what makes me happy. We certainly want our physical health. Everything's about getting our physical health, right? How many new exercise bikes are there out there right now with the TV screens and stuff? It's like there's like 80 different versions. A new a new fitness craze all the time, right? These are the things that we obsess over. These are the things that we feel like if we have those things, then we're on the road or the path to the real life. And while we need to be thankful for these things, this is not a message of discouraging or you better hurry up and get rid of that exercise bike because it's not serving the Lord. We need to be thankful for whatever it is the Lord has brought into our life. But eternity puts these things in a better perspective for us. We start to value them less because we know that's not where real life is found. We are in the midst of a story that God is playing out for all of creation that began in the garden when Adam and Eve said, I know you've given us perfection. I know you've given us everything we need for supply and happiness and companionship. But it's not it's close, but it's just not good enough. We want some authority in this. We want some say so. We just want a little space. Leave us alone. Can we not relate to this in our own human hearts? And so Adam and Eve, when they, when they uh, bit of the fruit, when they ate and partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God had specifically said stay away from, they fractured all of humanity by, in, by uh, introducing sin to where God put his plan of redemption or buyback into action that has been playing out ever since. The entire story of the Old Testament right up until uh, this this uh, period that we're studying together in John is all about God's plan to win us back, to close that gap, to heal that fracture 
and allow sinful humanity, which is all of us, to even be in the presence of a holy and perfect God. And on that timeline, while we're in that continuum, if you will, we have to wrestle with this idea of what roadmaps am I following? What destination am I chasing after? The roadmaps that I've been given all end up in dead ends. This obsession that I had with getting the right career going or living in the right neighborhood or finding that spouse, all of those things have proven to be what those things always are, is almost good enough, but not quite. We need to focus on a bigger destination. The, the, the more obvious statement I guess I could make is if you want to go in the right direction, you need to know your final destination. And so many of us haven't thought far enough to what does that end look like? Where will I be after the house lets me down, after the marriage fails me, after all those things? Where will I be and where is the Lord in that? Does he have something bigger as he pulls my perspective up and I get to see above and see the order of the roads and the trees and all that sort of stuff? What does he have for me? The details of your life only make sense when viewed from the perspective of eternity. Many of you will know the warning in Matthew 6 to not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And we get so caught up in the debate of how much is too much for a Christian. But if the scriptures don't spell out the amount for us, why are we getting so focused on the amount? What, what, what the Lord always cared about was our hearts. Do you have the stuff or does the stuff have you? And that way it gets a little bit harder to pinpoint the amount. I'm okay with this kind of annual salary. I'm okay with this much square footage. But if I go above that by one extra tick or something like that, then now I've just gone worldly. Now I've given the whole thing up. That isn't how it works, is it? Jesus in his sermon on the mount, and as he got to this part in Matthew 6, was always focused on the measures of our heart. How much of your heart does the Lord have? We won't know until we start taking a view of eternity, because eternity teaches us what's really important in life. Our old maps are only marked with dead ends. The new maps, however, have different measures and different destinations. We get a peek of that in James 1. Let's begin in verse 2. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, that sounds like a destination. If I said, Lord, is my ultimate destination to be steadfast, which means stable and enduring in you, now I've got a different viewpoint that all the things that hit me along the way as I'm on that road, they start to make more sense. Because why? Because the testing of my faith will produce that. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now we said, if, if you just started with that as the destination, if you said at the end of this road is your perfection and completion, you'll lack nothing. It's like, all right, I'm on board. Tell me about it. Well, it comes through endurance. It comes through testing. It comes through trials of various kinds. That's when most people say, do you have another map? Can I take the scenic route instead? Maybe I can still end up there, but not that way. 
But Jesus is making sure in this story that they would see the bigger miracle, see what he was more capable of to help them fixate on the life that really awaited them, not the one that they would settle for. It says that he stayed an extra two days. Did you pick that up when we read through that? Jesus gets the message on day one. It's probably already too late. Lazarus is already gone. And instead of it just being like, a, well, you know, I can't be bothered. I'm in the middle of something. No, it, we know from the story, the way this plays out, that Jesus has great affection for this family. But he still delays two extra days. Making the sisters kind of linger in agony. They were probably checking out the front door all the time. Is he coming yet? Any sign of the master? And Jesus still hadn't left. Now, there isn't a lot of proof for this that it would apply back in the time that this story is happening. But later on, we hear from a historical record that there was an overwhelming superstition, kind of a rabbinic teaching that that as a person was deceased, that the spirit would hover over the body for up to three days looking for any sign of is is this real? Is this really happening? Can I reenter and 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 start this over? And then as they start to notice that the body is changing and it looks like all the life is gone, they go, OK, I'm gone. That was the superstition that prevailed that kind of thinking. Is it possible that Jesus is saying, we're going to get rid of all that thinking too. We're going to make sure that you understand that Lazarus is really gone. So that what I'm about to do, you can't tie to any of your superstitions. Oh, that was just the spirit hanging on and then went back in and all that sort of stuff. Jesus was going to the nth degree to make sure you understand he's gone, right? So that what I'm about to do is more profound than anything that you can blame on. Oh, we just didn't understand the science or something like that, which still happens today. Justin Buzzard says it this way. He says, Jesus' resurrection power shows up in tombs, not hospital beds. That's not to say that God doesn't care about our illnesses or our sicknesses or that we don't pray over them. It's that his power is bigger than what we see just going on in the hospital beds. He didn't really want to deal with just Lazarus sickness. He wanted to deal with his death. And we too often think the path to joy is through comfort and safety, that the roadmap that we follow, as long as that has fewer potholes, a little bit better scenic routes, but the eternal map is marked with endurance through suffering. And if we're being honest, that's best for us now. This is how Paul Tripp says it in his book, simply titled Suffering which if you're going through anything from a uh, a paper cut to something far, far worse, I recommend you find this book and read it. It's very uh, beneficial that way. Commenting on the earlier passage that we read in James, this is what Paul says. In the very moment when you think, you and I think we've been forsaken, speaking of our suffering, we're actually being graced with God's rescuing, transforming, and delivering power. When I change my perspective and see what God could be up to in my difficulty and I see he hasn't in fact left me, he led me down this path, he delayed for the sisters two extra days so that he could be up to something even bigger, I start to trust maybe God is in this, not that he's gone. Not that he's forsaken me or abandoned me. Maybe he's just being silent for a couple days because he's going to show up on the other side and do something more than I could imagine. The glory of God becomes our greatest purpose. Settling for anything more shallow than God's glory only leaves us on these dead end roads. Secondly, the glory of God is our greatest protection. 
Let's go into this little strange. I heard a, a couple of the chuckles a little bit when Jen was reading the passage because this the answer that Jesus has kind of catches us off guard. After in verse seven, after this, he said to the disciples, "So let's go to Ju- Judea again." And the disciples said to him, "Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. You can't go back there. It's too close to danger. Don't don't do this. I know you're grieving. I know you're not thinking clearly. You can imagine all the resistance." So then Jesus makes a statement, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And Jesus wants his hearers, his followers, to trust a bigger promise than just physical reward or safety. He's pointing them to see that if we are in the hands of God, if we are walking in God's will, we can get as close to he wants us to be to anything that's a threat. And nothing will happen to us until he says it's time. So so Jesus is saying if if there's daylight, which now we have a lot less of here in Maine, I don't do we have 12 hours? We have 12 hours of daylight right now. But Jesus is saying that's the time where we get our work done. And if he's led us there to get the work done, we do it in the daylight. There's coming a day we won't be able to do these things. We're not delaying. We're we're moving into this even if it is closer to danger. Why? Because he believe, he knows that we can trust a bigger promise than whatever happens to us physically. He's going to experience that to the nth degree for us and on our behalf. You see, Jesus' perspective was not on his long-term survival. He knew why he came. His focus was on his soon sacrifice. And this was going to, this act that he was going to engage in was going to get them to see what that sacrifice was even all about. Corey Tenboom, the, um, the, uh, the great sufferer under Jewish concentration camps and the great thinker in Christianity said, there are no ifs in God's world. And no places that are safer than other places. The center of his will is our only safety. Let us pray that we may always know it. We are prone to doubt in God's plan because we think things should be rewarding now. We've bought the bill of goods that life is about what you can get out of it, that it's, it needs to be comfortable, that the more successful it looks on the outside, the better you're doing, all those kinds of things. It's the very rare person that says, this life that I'm living is in sacrifice to the great God, and I'm, I'm doing it from the perspective of his great glory. It's what gives me purpose and drive and direction. So whatever happens to me or through me is up to him and not me. That's what it means to be in the center of his will. And it is our greatest protection. This is how Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. That's us. We're these clay pots, these vessels to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. The bigger promise is not that we'll avoid discomfort, but that we'll bring praise to God through our ultimate protection, which is the protection of our souls. No matter what happens to our body, and Paul is testifying that even though we're on the brink of paying the ultimate price, we somehow make it through. But eventually Paul was martyred. So many of Jesus' disciples were killed for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
but that wasn't their ultimate um, uh, threat. What their ultimate threat was, was to not be seen as faithful before the Lord when their time was up. This is why Wearsby says that God's love for his own is not a pampering love, it's a perfecting love. We must never think that love and suffering are incompatible. Certainly they unite in Jesus Christ. The glory of God is our greatest protection. Let's take a side note just for a second. You hear, you heard uh, Thomas's response in the reading where, when he says, if you go back to that area, they're going to capture you and they're going to take you. And then what does Thomas say? He says, but if you're going, guys, let's go follow him and die with him. We're not going to let him do this alone, are we? What do we associate Thomas with? Doubt, right? If you talk to somebody who's a pessimist, you're just a doubting Thomas. And certainly he had his clear moments of very embarrassing statements. And they said, Jesus is returning. He says, ah, not unless I see the flesh, I touch the body, all that. I won't believe. Can we give just Thomas a shout out here for being a really great example of, even though his belief was skewed, he didn't really know what would happen. Turns out he was wrong on the prediction. This wasn't when they would take Jesus, but they would certainly formulate the plan officially because of this action. Thomas steps up and says, Let's go with him. Let's die with him. You see, Thomas had a perspective that God didn't have to protect me from harm or discomfort in order for me to think he was good. Thomas says, if I'm his disciple, if I'm his student, if I was, uh, if I'm his follower, I'll follow him even into the danger. The glory of God is our greatest protection. Lastly, with the time that we have left, the glory of God is also our greatest comfort. Now, we're going to get back into the bigger parts of the text here now and work our way through um, the, the bigger part of this story. In verse 17, the scripture says, Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Common practice, family, friends, even some professional mourners. If there is such a gig, could you imagine having that for your job? I got to go cry with people that are missing someone they love. This is, it was a big dramatic deal. It was, we're going to, we're going to walk through this. We're going to live through the pain of having to say goodbye to this person we love. And so it was a very dramatic scene. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she, because she's busy, because she has activity coursing through her veins, because she just can't sit silent, right? She gets up and goes and finds him. She meets him on the outskirts of town. And Jesus responds to Martha in the way that Martha needed. And I think the instruction for us is to find comfort in the power of Jesus' resurrection because he's going to give her a plan. Martha's busy. She needs instruction. She needs some, give me something concrete that will calm me down a little bit. So what does Jesus say? In response to her statement of, if you had been here, none of this would have happened. And we're kind of tempted to read into this um, accusatory tone coming from Martha. Where were you? How come you didn't help me avoid this? But she's just stating fact. Her belief. Something tells me, Lord, that if you had been around, we wouldn't even be having this day. She had enough belief in his ability and his power that maybe he would have healed the sickness like he had done for so many other people. 
This is more a statement of desire because she, she misses her brother and she believes so heartily in the Lord. She just says, I just know this could have been avoided if you had never had to leave. Maybe she's upset with all the Jews that chased him away, figuratively speaking. But she calms down. She says, but I know whatever you ask, God will give you. I don't think she even knows what she's saying with this very brilliant statement. I don't think because the rest of her actions about why are we rolling the stone away? He's going to stink and all this kind of stuff. It's not really indicating that she's really all in on the plan. Oh, something good about to happen. She's not saying that. I know whatever you ask, God will give you. I don't mean to to degrade your sonship before the Lord, maybe is what she's saying. And then he said, well, he's going to rise again. She goes, no, I know. My theology's square. I, I know the common belief of our day. I've been paying attention to the rabbis and everything. I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's when Jesus says, no, no, no. No, I, I am here now. Life is before you. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die. Okay, this is why it's all in the text. He's saying, even though you experience physical death, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Wait, I just thought you said, what if they did die? So he's talking about this ultimate death, this ultimate threat of even if they pass through the corridors of death, the ultimate threat. Remember, we talked about Psalm 23 last week. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. I will be with you. They'll never die even if they have a momentary physical death. Do you believe this? Yes, I do. I don't understand anything what you're talking about. I don't know what this has to do with my dead brother. I don't know what you're going to ask me to do next. But at this point, from what I understand, yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. I I emphasize the limit of her belief because there are many that would say because she made this statement, Jesus was able to go off and raise Lazarus from the dead. Almost like if you've seen the Christmas movie Elf and uh, and Santa is saying that he's got this clausometer on his dashboard. And uh, if, if Christmas spirit is low, then it's like an empty tank and his sleigh won't fly. And so as a backup plan, they had to install the Kringle 3000 underneath it. You know, the power of this puppy, this buggy to move because Christmas spirit was so low. And of course, as every Christmas movie's point is, is to raise Christmas spirit. So the more we believe, the more Santa's sleigh is hurled off into the sky. Is that what Jesus needed? He needed his 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 uh, healingometer cranked up by Martha's belief. Because the rest of this story is going to tell us she didn't quite know what she was believing in. She didn't say to him, I believe you are the Christ. And if you want to roll this stone away and have my brother walk out, you can do it instantly. So I believe do it. She gives him a very true and accurate statement, but with no concept of what she's even claiming or what she would expect to happen here. This is this should give us great comfort that it, the power of resurrection is in Jesus hands alone and not in the measure of our belief. The strength of our belief does not fuel the plans of God, but rather gives us the peace of knowing that he has our best interests in mind, even as he is serving his own glory. As we turn to Mary and his response to her, we can find comfort in the closeness of Jesus' compassion. I want you to think about the last two weeks of messages that we've taught on Jesus being the ultimate shepherd. 
Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here and is calling for you. Jump down to verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Tell, stop me if you've heard this before. Lord, if you've been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus is like, yeah, I heard that. Got that. But when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping and just this huge heartbroken scene, it was almost too much for Jesus to bear. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And then the translators of the, of the Bible that we have before us thought it fit to punctuate this, these two words so that you and I would forever say the shortest verse in all the Bible is Jesus wept. That we would be able to, with this little memory trick, remind ourselves that the compassion of Jesus as the ultimate shepherd was that he would feel the things that we feel. So often as we're talking to folks that are, are losing their loved ones or we're preparing for a funeral or anything, it seems weird to say it, but we say it anyway because we believe it to be true that he hurts just as much as you do in this situation. And it seems to not be a, it seems to mess with our, our calculations a little bit because if he cared, he would have stopped it. So he mustn't care about it as much as me because I would have stopped this. It's hard for us to understand that though it is God's will that life will come from death. He's proven that from day one of the story. He never wanted death to be a part of our lives in the first place. And this phrase that he was deeply moved in spirit might seem like just kind of like, oh, he just felt it in here. But the translation is almost like he snorted like a horse. I know a way to introduce that phrase right in a really emotional part of the sermon, right? But I want us to understand here that, that the scriptures, even though it's giving us an accurate account, it's trying to bring us into this perfect storm of a lot of emotions that Jesus is, is dealing with. And so this involuntary reaction comes out of him, this kind of, it catches you off guard and something weird comes out of you or you feel something deep within. What would Jesus have been feeling in the time that he's seeing his, his poor sister Mary, if you will? not related sister, seeing her broken and seeing all the people in support of her and her quiet, present little spirit that used to sit at his feet. Of course, he would feel sadness that she lost her brother, probably her protector, probably her rock and stability. He looked out over all the uh, additional mourners, the people that couldn't make sense of it, that couldn't fix the problem, that couldn't bring him back. And he started to have pity on all of them. The Bible tells us that he'd look out and scan over the crowd and have compassion on them as wayward sheep without a shepherd. Certainly he's feeling that. But don't you also think he's feeling a little ticked off? Ticked off that these people that he loves... That this guy, that they even said, this is like a brother to Jesus, that he had to even taste death and go into a grave. He's so upset that Satan has had his way ever since his first deception, that nothing but death has been introduced to this existence that he and his father and the Holy Spirit created for perfection, created for peace and companionship and all the things that our souls have ever craved. And he's been winning far too long and I'm sick of it. I'm absolutely sick of it that they have no hope for life after this. And I'm doing something about it. 
I think it's interesting that Jesus had different responses from from Martha and Mary. She needed a determined savior because her her mind, her love language was action and a plan, right? Mary, more of a woman of emotion, needed a present savior. But both of them needed a resurrecting savior. There's this perfect blend of grief and outrage. It's all wrapped up in this phrase. He was deeply moved in his spirit. I love the way Carson uh, plays this out for us. He says, grief and compassion without outrage reduced to mere sentiment. Think of all the do-gooding that we can do out there in life. And we can have so much grief and compassion. We can say, oh, it's so sad that this has to be in this world. Oh, it's terrible that we have to watch this or that person has to suffer that. But without any outrage, there's no sense or motivation for me to do anything about it. If I'm not good and ticked off by it, then I just kind of feel bad. And I want credit for feeling bad about what you have to go through. It reduces to mere sentiment while outrage without grief hardens into self-righteousness, a self-righteous arrogance and irascibility. If you needed a definition like I did for irascibility, hot temper, easily provoked to anger. If I'm just mad at everything, but I don't feel broken by it. If everyone's just wrong, hello, political season of say the last, I don't know, four decades. I'm just mad at everything, but I don't have any investment in it or I don't have any path in how to change it. I'm just outraged, but I don't have any grief about what it's doing to God's creation. Then it leads me to just be self-righteous. I'm mad about the right things or I'm easily provoked or set off. So let's pick up again in verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb It was a cave and a stone laying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man with limited faith and understanding of some of the things that she had already said, said, Lord, by this time, there'll be an odor for he's been dead for four days. Very practical. I would have been saying the same thing. Do we really need to see this? This is all you hunters out there. This is why I don't take up any of your invitations to go hunting with you. Do I need to see what the end result? I can't do that. Not my back. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus isn't just trying to play up to the audience to make it more dramatic. He's bringing us into the intimacy of a father and a son. He's helping us understand that he doesn't do, Jesus doesn't do anything by himself. He depends on the will of his father. And so that's why he prays this out loud for them to see. In verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, this way, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I'm imagining this scene and it it would be one, I think, of great trepidation because even though you want to see what may happen, there's a part of you that doesn't really want to see this. If this really happens, if he calls the light, if that dude walks out of that grave, it's going to change a few things. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to sleep tonight. What are we going to see? What's it going to look like? What condition is it? I don't want this to work, but it's kind of cool, isn't it? What if? 
Do you think even Mary and Martha were thinking that? Oh, it'd be awesome to have our brother back. Would it be though? It's been four days. I don't know. Some have said that Jesus had to specifically call Lazarus by name because of his great authority over death might have caused the other six or seven inhabitants of that tomb potentially to have come forward as well. Lazarus was raised to a restored mortal life. He was still wrapped in clothing that needed to be removed for him. So Jesus directs them to do that. But what we'll see is when it's Jesus' turn to defeat death and he's making his way out of the tomb, he discards his own robes, even takes his face cloth and folds it up and sets it down. You see, Lazarus was raised to a life that he's eventually going to face physical death. He wasn't done forever. He was raised to the life that he had just lost. But what Jesus did by raising again was bringing himself into a spiritual resurrection, giving himself a glorified body and therefore defeating the power of death for all of us, for all of eternity. And he did that and he signified that with those little symbols. I can take my own clothes off. I can take my own linens off my face. I can set it aside. Why? Because I beat this thing. Lazarus still needed help. What are we saying? This morning, what are we doing next with this? I would encourage us all to ask God to make us a willing vessel for his glory. The key is not that you and I will go through things. We will. It's a lie to think that we can take the scenic route. It's a, it's a, it's setting us up for disappointment to think if I just ignore the stops on the map, I won't have to go through them. You're still going to go down that road. The difference is, is are you a willing participant in the process? Are you a willing vessel for his glory? God, if this makes you more famous, if this allows you to show off more on the other side, then I'm all in. With a smile on my face? Not necessarily. With a skip in my step? Absolutely not. I'm freaked out by this. It's uncomfortable. It's painful. It's scary. But it's not about me. Also, I would encourage us to put ourselves in the path of his mighty works. Mary, Martha, even Thomas himself made themselves available for the Lord to do the work right in their presence because they didn't shy away from the opportunity. They didn't move away from the Lord's presence. In fact, they specifically reached out to him. Come, show up, be with us, do something about this. A life of comfort or a desire for comfort avoids the paths that God does his best work in. Also, I would encourage us to strive for sincere praise in the midst of our suffering. I, I emphasize the word sincere because I know that oftentimes we feel the pressure of just putting on a Christian smile when everything's terrible. But sincerely praising the Lord, not just a false skip in our step or not letting other people know that it hurts. Christians can demonstrate honest joy because of the hope of the future, not the delusion of the present. And lastly, I would say, we should allow our perspective to be altered by the height of God's glory. Rather than just giving in to the bleakness of our circumstances or the potential pain, think, is God up to something that makes him look better? And if he is, isn't that better for me? Then how do I participate and aid in that process? It's a step of great faith, but it prepares us for the future. When we are around the throne of God and witnessing his glory and singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. We join the chorus with the angels and just take in that glory like Isaiah saw. And we said, this is what it's all about. Not all the other stuff that we had to go through. Would you stand and pray with me?
Lord God, thank you, Father, for the gift of perspective. Thank you, Lord, for arresting us in our tracks, Lord, and stopping us from heading too too far down a road of destruction, only seeing the pain and misery in front of us, but allowing us to perch from your perspective. Lord, thank you for being a great and glorious God who condescended to your people so that we can even experience a glimpse of your majesty. I pray, Lord, that others will see the greatness of your glory through our testimony and our faithfulness, that even before we get around your throne for all of eternity, Lord, that our lives will sing the praise of your majesty and your might. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.